This is our worst episode. I'm gonna call it right now. I didn't think so. I think we've been worse. When? Alright, uh, this is Project A Plus, you're Hunter on Q. So, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, we're going to talk, talk about the dirt, and we're also going to talk about the fabulous Baron Munchausen. Not the fabulous Baker Boys? Oh god, I've, I made a terrible mistake. And not the adventures of Baron Munchausen or any of the other infinite versions of the same story. Oh man, I watched all of those and not the one that I was supposed to watch. Anyway, we should lead, we should lead with the dirt. Mostly cruel. The dirt. Mostly cruel. The dirt. Mostly cruel. The dirt. Douglas Booth. Mostly cruel. Nikki Sixx. The dirt. Ewan Rion. Mostly cruel. Nick Mars. The dirt. Olsen Baker. Mostly Cruel. Tommy Lee. The Dirt. Daniel Weber. Mostly Cruel. Vince Neal. The Dirt. <laughs> David Costavile. Mostly Cruel. D.O.C. McGee. The Dirt. Pete Davidson. Mostly Cruel. Tom Zutat. The Dirt. Mostly Crew The Dirt. Mostly Crew The Dirt Dirt. Mostly Crew. The Dirt. Mostly Crew The Dirt Dirt. Mostly Crew The Dirt. Mostly crew the dirt dirt. Mostly crew the dirt. Mostly crew the dirt dirt. Uh, so okay, let me let me explain the dirt this way. Okay. Uh, so this is another Netflix distributed object. It's another movie that we do on the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, you know the band Motley Crew? No, I, I don't. Okay, well, they're, they're a band. Like a current band, or...? Well, they're, they're still a going concern, technically, yeah. I think, aren't they? Yeah, they released a new song for this record. For this... For this, uh... This film release. Did they really? Yeah, it's part of the Dirt soundtrack. I listened to it. Was it good? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, okay, I'll put it like this. It was as good as any of the other, their other songs. <laughs> so it was brilliant, is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so the so this film is called The Dirt, and it's about the rock and roll band Motley Crue. And we should we should say it's based on their um, multi-person memoir, multi-author memoir. Uh, their notorious memoir, The Dirt. Yes. By the band and Neil Strauss. Yes, who, uh, if you are not aware, is uh, someone who wrote, has written many books about the pickup artist community. Okay, good. <laughs> like the game for instance it's his most well-known one 
So he's got a good pedigree, and the director of this film has a great pedigree. Yeah. In fact, this is his, the first film he's directed that doesn't have the word jackass in the title, which is pretty good. Yeah, it's good. he's moving up in the world. He has also worked in television. Mm-hmm. On the TV show Jackass. <laughs> but uh, he's, he's directed four jackass projects prior to this. Yes, including all of the movies and Jackass Presents Bad Grandpa. This is another, uh, I, I don't know, you know, if you want to use like the strictest sense of the word auteur, I feel like <laughs> you have to consider uh, Jeff Tremaine. Well, there's definitely like a, there's definitely a, th- if you look at his previous films, there's a theme that carries over. Right? Yeah, and this one, it, it is continued to some degree in this movie. Mm. In fact, the parts that this movie, good or bad, I'm not, I'm not casting judgment, uh, has the most personality or what seem to be carryovers from that legacy of jackass material so this is literally just a biopic based on yeah a bio book now we we are not be able to say how accurate it is no apparently not very but nonetheless so yeah it tells the story of the formation of the band sex drugs and rock and roll and uh the disintegration of the band drugs and then the rehabilitation of the band so that's the film. There's, there's nothing else to be said about the plot. Yeah. Such as it is. I mean, it does have a it does have a narrative. If you've seen a biopic focusing on a musician or musicians, I would say most specifically, if you've seen the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, you can kind of uh, get a general sense of what's going on here. Yeah, but it also, I would say, more directly mirrors every single other rock biopic I've ever seen. It's like it's like a it's like a merging of those two in some mm. to some degree, plus some jackass stuff thrown in. So, uh, what did you think of it? What did you think of the <laughs> no, movie? No, I already got it. I already got it. Okay, so while I have recently developed something of a fondness for bad rock biopics, right? Uh-huh. And while this does have a few, I would say, enjoyably asinine moments I would, I would agree with that i think as a whole this is this is close to being unwatchable <laughs> yeah um i i actually i gotta say <laughs> you loved it <laughs> no, i definitely did not love it. it just say I, de- I definitely didn't love it but uh i i i mean you know i don't think this movie is is good on any level um and i think it's like morally repugnant <laughs> Oh, yeah. I want to talk more about the morality of it. (laughs) But I I have to say, as like a viewing experience... You loved it. I did not hate watching it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's because, like, for the show, we've watched so many movies that just feel exactly the same, like, type of shitty genre exercise or... You know what I mean? Netflix model, bland thing. Well, I I think I'm getting what you're saying. You, You loved it. Shut up! Fuck you. But it definitely, it definitely felt uh, different than those movies. So <laughs> that's why I liked it more than, say, Apostle. But it's not good in any any, any respect. But it's not boring. So that's why I didn't hate it. I, I found it became boring. Oh, I, I do. Okay, after at the after like the bit where um, they sober up. After that, it's pretty boring. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. The lot, the final stretch is rough. Um, like it's not a long movie if you just look at the duration it's 108 minutes but like it felt much longer because of that final stretch yeah no that did that did that moment did have one of my favorite like laugh moments so i kind of liked it for that me too i think i think we have the same moment (laughs) well let's find out okay one two three 
It's when his cancer. daughter is dying of cancer. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and it's cross-cut between the band falling apart. That was so funny. It was so tasteless. <laughs> it's transcendent. Let's let's actually uh, uh, explain that for the listener. Um, so the the four members of of uh, Motley Crue basically interchangeable, except for like they, they all have like one dividing personality like quirk, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's Vince is that he's stupid, right? And he's a he's a, a chick magnet. Yes. Um, what was the guitarist's name? Mar- Mick Mars is that he's old. Nicky <laughs> Six is that he's addicted to heroin. Wait, Mick Mick Mars also has like a degenerative health condition, spinal thing. Yeah, you, I guess you should whatever. mention that they are all have some form of trauma, <laughs> or yeah. they receive trauma. Tommy Tommy Lee is like the party guy. Yeah, but he's also like the the child. <laughs> yeah, the the boy member of the 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 team, and that's it. That's all that distinguishes them really. They all have, are very preoccupied with um, just doing drugs and getting laid. So, near the end of the film, after the band has um, courted destruction by their various self-destructive behaviors, and one of the sort of uh, things that breaks the camel's back, as it were, uh, is the fact that Vince Neil's daughter has uh, uh, received some sort of uh, cancer diagnos- uh, diagnosis, which the movie doesn't really get into explicit detail about and i think the movie wants to be like oh man isn't this such a you know sad occurrence um but at the same time (laughs) the way that they uh (laughs) do it is that they uh sort of show these scenes of uh vince neil like talking to his daughter for the last time um and they sort of cross cut between that and uh the rest of the band being on hard times which is really funny (laughs) Well, I thought the cancer the cancer scenes were funny in and of themselves because, um, first of all, uh, the guy playing Vince Neil at this point just just to demonstrate physically that you know he's having a rough time. Yeah, he has this sort of <laughs> ludicrous stubble on his face yeah, that looks like it was like painted on or something. It looks yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, it does look bad. It doesn't look like he's on hard times. It looks like he's just spent a few hours in the makeup chair. Yeah, or, or like, you know, maybe he missed shaving for a day. Like, no big deal. Yeah. Um, but the way he tries to comfort his doomed, cancer-riddled daughter <laughs> is, is by telling her that she has a flower inside her and the surgeons will have to remove it before she can go home. I found that hilarious. Me too. Not because like there's something inherently hilarious about yeah. a child dying of cancer. Well, I mean, there Although, is that. Come but... on, there is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's comedy. No, but um, to be real, to be real, in the context of this film and the flawed morality of this film, it it, it just comes across so ridiculously. Yeah. That it's hilarious. It is hilarious. But let's uh, let's dive into the morality of this film. Okay. I think we should start at the form of this film because it mirrors basically every single other rock biopic. Um, they all have the same structure, the same acts, essentially. For sure. So the first act of the film is to uh, establish the characters before they're famous, right? Mm-hmm. And ideally, this will involve some form of uh, disadvantaged or troubled upbringing. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, that's supplied by Nikki Six's background. Um, he has a difficult relationship with his mother. He's an absent father and a series of uh, shitty stepdads. So far, so good. 
None of the other band members have particularly troubling upbringings, at least as, as far as this film is concerned. Or as far as it's revealed to us, anyway. Yeah. Um, so that establishes uh, some low point that we can then contrast with the highs that they reach. Yes. Uh, and then the next act is the beginnings of the rise to fame. So the flourishing of talent, um, the discovery by an industry rep, in this case, played Annoyingly. convincingly <laughs> by <laughs> Pete Davidson. <laughs> and I use convincingly <laughs> in a rather loose, haphazard fashion, but uh, played by Pete Davidson is probably a better played way. Played is a, so technically, strong way, a strong word. Technically played by... <laughs> Pete Davidson's definitely there on set. I'll put it like that. Yeah, he's, uh, he's on screen. Yeah. <laughs> he was in frame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have that act. Then we have the act of them hitting the peak. And this is the only section of the film in which uh, the filmmaker injects any sense of energy, I guess. Yeah. Um, in which we, we do get to revel in the sex, drugs and rock and roll side of things. And uh, so that goes on for a bit. Then we get the fall from grace. Mm-hmm. Invariably centred around one of the characters' uh, addiction to a narcotic... Mm. Uh, or alcohol, but uh, either heroin or alcohol usually is in these type of films, if not both. Um, and their careers and relationships are jeopardized as a result. And then, because you can't end a rock biopic on a downer, nope. biography permitting, um, we must get some sort of redemption or rehabilitation. We must end on a note of hope. Yes. And that, and that happens even if there is a further you know, unseen tragedy to come. Or even if, say, reality contradicts the... Well, yeah, I mean, in the case of, like, something... Well, I haven't seen it, but I'm assuming this is the strategy employed by a movie like Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, which I have not seen. I think it ends, like, around the point of Live Aid, right? Like, that's, like, a triumphant high. Yes. Even though uh, the lead protagonist of the movie goes on to die shortly after that. This might not be the case, but I'm sticking my neck out there. I reckon it ends on, like, a high of the performance... And then it fades to black and we get some text saying he died, you know, at, but his music lives on. And then like, you know, in the, the hearts of millions of the fans that mm. love him. But they're not going to end like with a scene of people mourning at his funeral and then it ends. It's going to end on some sort of high note somehow. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, but this, so this story, the rehabilitation comes in the form of uh, Vince Neil, who has left the band, rejoining the band for a, a triumphant second go at it. Yeah. Because everyone remembers the second coming of Motley Crue. Uh, in the 90s, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. But anyway, so this, this trajectory, and this is usually a problem with most rock biopics, to be honest, but probably exacerbated by Motley Crue, the story of Motley Crue, I should say. Yeah. Um, is that the scenes that depict the dest- destructive side of the lifestyle, like the personal costs these characters incur as a result of their indulgences, are, I would say, at best, hollow and, at worst, exploitative and cynical. Because, like, the... And this is certainly the case of Motley Crue. The the sex, drugs and rock and roll destruction side of things is really the only reason this film exists, the only reason anyone is watching it, and the only reason anyone cares about Motley Crue. So you can't really, you know, have your cake and eat it too and say, oh, but was it really worth it when they had to have a bit of a heroin addiction and his kid died of cancer? (laughs) It does feel very inauthentic. Yeah, you can't really celebrate 
and condemn the lifestyle. No, you can't. Within the same narrative. No. Particularly. And I, I do, although I don't like The Wolf of Wall Street, I do think that the strategy that used is much more interesting and effective than than this. Yeah, because it's, it's trying to, it's more about the audience's reaction to it versus the, because I mean, The Wolf of Wall I mean, not to, you know, talk about The Wolf of Wall Street, but basically the, the way it portrays the stuff is intoxicating, but it also is, um, it's not like positive towards that intoxication, you know? It doesn't try to justify its protagonist in any way. The thing that, you know, when I said up front that I've kind of developed uh, some sort of fondness for the genre of rock biopics, but my main fondness is for the scenes of the musicians composing their famous songs. <laughs> this, one, this one is very thin on that, unfortunately. It is, yeah. It would just not be effective in this, because like, it's like, oh man, the, you know, the genius scene where whoever is composing this music, like, neither you or I have much knowledge of Motley Crue songs, so it's not going to be... Uh... No. Like, those scenes would just be unintelligible, which maybe would make them more enjoyable, but... Yes, yes. But yeah, so normally in other in other rock biopics, we get those great scenes where they try and condense what was probably quite a dry and boring process, composing songs and coming up with them in the studio or whatever, into this, like, exciting scene in which, like, they, they overhear someone on the subway saying a line that turns out to be the title of their biggest hit or something like that, and they're like, ah, wait, play that again, that's great. But yeah, this this couldn't care less about the music of Motley Crue. In fact, it doesn't it does not even play one of their songs in full. No, and we we literally get no scene of them actually writing a song. They've already written the songs in all cases. Yeah. Even when they're in rehearsal and stuff, they've somehow already written everything. They don't come up with anything particularly. Of course, of course. The closest it gets to hinting that they're creating something great is around the recording of. Dr. Feelgood, yeah. which is technically their most critically acclaimed record, possibly their biggest known record, I'm not sure, because they're, record- they're doing the recording while they're all sober. So, but, and that's mainly the reason why I guess it's slightly better than the rest of the dross, but un- nonetheless. Motley Crue sucks. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie, this movie sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I still somewhat enjoyed myself. Yeah, this is pretty, pretty bad. Oh, no. <laughs> Definitely would not recommend anyone watch it. But, uh, you know, again, I just, I didn't hate it. <laughs> it's not really much to say. It's kind of just like the same, like, circuitous, shitty scenes over and over again about them doing, like, terrible things. And then the movie being like, yeah, isn't this so cool? So we sort of talked about the fact that when the film is kind of reveling in their excess, uh, it's perhaps the most enjoyable yeah uh or at least the the most care that we can sense behind the scenes yeah is, is taken taken then but i don't think the film ever lives up to like the opening like party scene yeah the opening party scene uh in which i'm not sure if this is like a particular anecdote that's ripped straight from the the book or something but um is i don't know who's who's doing the act i believe i believe tommy lee is performing uh, in this case um, yeah, so he's, he's, uh, servicing a lady in the middle of a room, uh, the, in which a party is happening. Mm. And then she proceeds to squirt everywhere. And a very highly erotic, uh, sequence, I must say. And I mean, I'm not saying that that was like amazing, No. <laughs> but I don't think the film achieve that high ever again what you not even mean that i i feel like it did during the scene where it's like the first person like 
uh, here's what life on the road is like. <laughs> <laughs> now, that scene is like good, but it definitely uh, hit a similar high, I think. <laughs> yeah, this movie is. Uh, <laughs> do you think this movie is misogynistic? <laughs> I'm laughing not because I think misogyny is funny, but uh, asking the question seems to be funny to me because uh, <laughs> of how misogynistic this movie is. Uh, yeah, I guess it. I guess not. I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, yeah. It's a movie that has a dim view of of women, and I would say like human life in general. This is what I imagine the Entourage movie is like. I've never seen it. It's supposed to be good. Oh yeah, I've heard uh, nothing but acclaimed things. <laughs> Did you uh, laugh at any point? Yeah, the cancer point. <laughs> Besides that, did the movie elicit a genuine laugh out of you? No, not on its own terms. Hmm. I had to make a confession. It, it did make you laugh. <laughs> Which bit? Or just all of it? <laughs> just, I was just laughing nonstop. No, it was the part with the Aussie Osborne. I mean, I laughed at that guy's attempt at the accent, which was absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, but I have to say, I laughed when he was like eight episodes of urine. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you besides that. I was just watching it's like this is so terrible. But at the same time I was like <laughs> I couldn't stop myself. It like forced its way out. So <laughs> Um none of the British people depicted in this film seem to have been actually played by someone who's even heard of England. Um I also thought it was funny like laughing at the film. Uh, at the at the end, like during the credits, when they're like intercutting scenes of the real Motley Crew and the fake Motley Crew, yeah, there's this like terrible sequence where um, the actor who's playing Tommy Lee goes into a trailer, and then the real Tommy Lee comes out and goes, "Oh, hey guys, what's up?" Oh, man. I was like, "Oh, what, what, what? It's the actual Tommy Lee? Like, no he was way. available. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't doing anything with his life." <laughs> also, I think it's really funny that. The moment the movie chooses to use as their, like, moment of, like, unity, right? Hmm. <laughs> I was looking it up, and right after this album was released, like, Tommy Lee broke up with the band for, like, ten years or something like that. Did he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really funny to me. <laughs> um, another, another unintentional laugh is the bit where, um, where, uh, Nikki Six first starts using heroin. There's a bit where he's like, I was looking out anywhere for a new mother to comfort me, and her name was heroin. Yes, yes. That's also yes. really funny. Um, that's ripped straight from the the pages of the book. Oh, man. So, I mean, I you, you know, you can't say this that. book is, is inaccurate to the to the way that Molly Cruz saw themselves. So. Uh, to explain that scene a bit further, like, he's talking on the narration as if he's referring to a woman. Yeah. And we see the back of a naked woman walking towards him. Yeah. As if this is the, the fabled object of his affection. And then it's revealed that he's actually shooting up with a needle and he's talking about heroin. Whoa! Yeah. Wow, man. <laughs> oh, God. Are you happy that I made you watch this? Yeah, in exchange for yesterday, which I'm very pumped about. I bet yesterday will be exactly what you want, though. But maybe not, because it's, I mean, it's not like a biopic, so... It, it looks like a lot of fun. I hope it's as good as the trailer. Like, it doesn't look amazing, but I hope it's as good as the trailer makes it seem. I mean, it, it is directed by Danny Boyle, who does know how to make a entertaining, like, <laughs> movie, I think. And ri- written by Richard Curtis. Oh, man. Who... Your favorite <laughs> filmmaker of all time. <laughs> I can only assume. But the I, I can't imagine 
that there's actually a way to satisfactorily resolve the premise. The premise is sort of interesting because it's obviously still trying to be a feel-good film. Yeah. I mean, you, you, could, you could do a resolution that was a downer that would be interesting and effective. But in the in the context of the the type of film that it's going for, Presumably. I can't imagine a satisfactory way of resolving the idea of someone like fraudulently pretending they've written all the Beatles songs. Um, maybe there is one. Maybe this movie just ends. <laughs> because, like, because I have to do something like it'll be like him going. He'll have to confess to like his girlfriend and say, you know, I actually didn't do it. But then she say, oh, but you've shown your true talent anyway. Have I? I just stole the Beatles songs and I, you know, I did creditable versions, but it was the songs that everyone loves. Like, yeah, have I really shown my own talent? Like, yes, you're great anyway. We forgive you. We love you. I would love it if the movie was like, had a Shutter Island to do. I haven't seen the ending of Shutter Island. So no, spoilers. Don't spoil it, man. Uh, all right, so shall we move on from the dirt? We got, we got to give it, we got to decide our patented, uh, our point rating. Okay. Um, I'd probably give it, um, two points, I think. Whoa, that's, that's higher than I was expecting. Uh, I think I'd probably give it the same. Well, I have to be different now because I've been more negative about it. Yeah, so you have. I'll give it one and a half points, <laughs> just to be fair. There you go. One and a half is probably right, actually. Yeah. There we go. Half star in it. Yeah, yeah. So people can tell the difference between the two of us. All right. So that's it. Um, now let's move on to the fabulous Baron Munchausen. So, um, the fabulous Baron Munchausen is a, it's Czech, right? It's Czech, yes. <laughs> it's a Czech movie about the, uh, uh, directed Baron, by, uh, something, it's directed by someone, yeah. Carol Zeman. Carol Zeman, yep. Um, and it's a movie about the titular Baron Munchausen, uh, mm-hmm. who, uh, as our audience knows, is a sort of quasi-legendary teller of tall tales. Um, um, but this movie transposes the Baron and other various figures from European mythology, uh, onto the moon. (laughs) And, um, it sort of is about the Baron meeting this astronaut, um, from what I assume is our Earth, or regular Earth. Yes. (laughs) And, uh, who comes to the moon and believes he's the first person ever to come to the moon, but is in fact greeted by uh, various people from Jules Verne novels and, um, what's his name? Cyrano de Bergerac. Yes, yes. And also Baron Munchausen. Anyway, so um, the Baron just takes uh, the titular, the, not the titular, <laughs> what did you say? The protagonist of the film um, on a little voyage uh, to the planet Earth, but it is not the Earth that you and I know, Hugh. It is, in fact, the Earth of legends and myth. Um, and he sort of gets in a series of misadventures. They meet up with a princess at one point. Um, and, yeah, that's that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. 
But this movie is not so remarkable in terms of the narrative it presents, even if that has some interest. It's more the way in which uh, it achieves this very strange and unique visual palette, I think. Um, the film blends animation and uh, incredibly uh, incredible sequences of sets which seem to have been drawn to appear like they are animated but are in fact not and uh, have sort of a comic book feel to them and also just insane color correction <laughs> Another, a bevy of other special effects all of which are very interesting and entertaining um, that's basically it so Hugh what did you think about the fabulous beer of Munchausen <laughs> I got you again motherfucker wow uh, I thought this was great, actually. Mm. Uh, I thought it was, in its own way, sublime. Oh, interesting. In its uh, consistent inventiveness and wit. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed its sort of celebration of the human imagination. Wow. It really played like, basically, Terry Gilliam's wet dream. Yeah, kind of. And uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was very enjoyable. Mm -hmm. What did you think? Uh, I actually you hated it. Well, I didn't hate it, but I, I must admit that I uh, found this to be kind of boring at the end. Of it. Mm. Uh, I definitely enjoyed the visual stylization a lot, but at a certain point, I was just like, whatever, and it sort of felt nothing towards it. Uh, I really enjoy this sort of special effect where the limitation of what can be achieved is part of the aesthetic. Yeah. So it doesn't feel dated at all. No, it doesn't. Whereas a film that tried to be photorealistic in its special effects at the same time, 1961, you know, would have dated terribly. Yeah. I like, I like the, the stylized way of, the very artificial stylized way of um, treating the special effects. Yeah, so do I. And the mixture of media was, was really interesting and effective. I agree. Like, there's a particularly great moment where... Uh, the Baron has taken... Do you call him the Baron or, just, or is Baron his name? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Or is he a Baron? I don't know. He's just anyway, a... Baron Munchausen. I mean, the actual guy was a Baron, so... Okay, there you go. So the Baron. The Baron takes the Moon Man to Earth um, and they go to uh, a sultan in Turkey. Yes. And he's got this contraption where if you step on a carpet that's just before the dais... Um, a bunch of arrows automatically shoot forward via some sort of mechanism. Well, they're like spears. The spears, yeah. Um, this happens a few times, and the Moon Man keeps testing it by putting his, his foot on and off the carpet. And then the, the camera sort of shifts down towards this animated cardboard uh, mechanism that is controlling the whole thing. Uh, and, and it's obviously not something they actually built in scale. No of the real actors or anything like that. It's this great integration of this uh, cardboard kind of mechanism they created. I, that was one, that was probably my favorite moment. I could imagine watching this, uh, with relish again, uh, were I bedridden with an illness. Yeah. I imagine that would be an enjoyable experience, but yeah. And I just didn't find there was much to this besides the visual stylings. But I mean, that's, that's, that's its whole, reason for being like that's that's all it is really and i'm happy about that uh yeah i just didn't find i didn't that, need more to, i guess i just needed a little bit something a little bit of something extra it's pretty short as well it's like 90 minutes yeah yeah 
But I, I found it kind of a slog to get through at the end, actually. Now, I mean, I'm even having trouble to remember what the ending is like. We go to the moon again. I liked the ending. Mm. The ending was good. Yeah. Whatever. And the ending was really short. Like, the bit when they get on the moon is where it wraps up pretty quickly. Yeah. But, um, what's his name? Carol Zeman. Yes. He's been variously referred to as the Czechoslovakian version of Ray Harryhausen. Mm-hmm. Because he also did a lot of stop motion stuff, including a uh, prehistoric film. That's interesting. Where there's stop motion dinosaurs and stuff. Uh, which is apparently worth seeking out. Um, but he's also been referred to as um, a later version of... What's his name? Uh, Trip to the Moon guy. Millet. Uh, yes, Millet. Millet. Um, funnily enough, Millet himself had made a version of a Baron Munchausen story, mm. which is an 11-minute short, which you can literally watch on the Wikipedia page for it. Uh-huh. It's a little bit different. It's Baron Munchausen having too much to drink. And then having a bunch of dreams in his bedroom. Oh. But it actually prefigures and or anticipates uh, a lot of the stuff in Sherlock Jr. Mm. That uh, Buster Keaton does with the cinema screen. You right. know, where yeah. he walks into it and it changes scene. This, And then, you know, he has to react to suddenly the reconfiguration of the space. Yep. Um, this does the same thing, but with a mirror in his bedroom. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. And there was also a famous... Um, I think it's a colour German version that was commissioned by Goebbels uh-huh. during the days of the Third Reich, uh, like 1943 or something like that. That was a huge success, although Hitler didn't approve, apparently. Well, that, well, that case sucks. Uh, then, of course, Terry Gilliam himself made his own version in the late 80s, mm. which I have seen. Have you seen it? No, I've not. I remember it as being pretty forgettable for whatever reason. I would like to see it. A very troubled production, as as you'd expect. Um, but anyway, Baron Munchausen. It's kind of just like, it's a hard film to be like that uh, analytical about, you know? It's so wrapped up in this like specific visual majesty. I thought you were going to attack its like, anti-science subtext. No. Not at all. <laughs> there was that, that, I mean, that scene where the Baron is just like, yeah, Tony, don't backstate your kids. It was, I thought it was a little jarring. Yeah. But it was so charmingly rendered. So. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was good. So I decided to uh, sue my parents for giving me vaccinations. I see, you're going to get into uh, double features. What's it called? Bonus features? Bonus. Oh, no, wait, we've got a pre recorded song. I forgot. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus I watched the movie Iron Man, which we'll talk about at a later date. You rewatched the movie Iron. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, had been, it had been the first time I'd seen it since I, like since achieving like adulthood. So you know, okay, it's kind of like yeah, a fresh way of viewing. Besides that, I watched a movie called Harris is Burning, and uh, my thoughts pretty much mirror yours. But you said all those things, you It's good, good movie. Yeah, I pretty much said it was good movie. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> You didn't say a single other thing. Um, did you have to watch it for class, or did you watch it for pleasure? I did have to watch it for class. Okay. But I also watched it for pleasure, because it's a good movie. Ah. Yeah, it's just a great encapsulation of the specific time and place. Um, and I think very effective and sad. Hmm. Um, it's sad for good reasons, and celebratory as well. 
And uh, it's interesting, the fact that the the title just sounds like a perfect encapsulation of the story, right? But it's just literally the name of the club. Um, Because I didn't know that going in until it's revealed in the film. Um, But yeah, I like the I like the way that the title works. Is the title itself on its own is so evocative? Yeah, and it's also just the name of the club. For sure. It's cool. It's a cool name for a club. Also, it's a good movie. That's all you watched. Yep, that's all she wrote. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go see Claire Denis live. Oh really? Person. Yeah. Is she showing High Life? No, well, I mean she is, but I'm not going to that. I'm gonna go see her. Is it High Life? Yep, that's her, her new film. I mean, I'm gonna go see that when it comes out here, which is not. It's gonna come out soon, I think. Um, but no, she's introducing. I mean, she's in town to to like give a talk about High Life at some some uh, repertory cinemas or whatever. But I'm seeing her because she's going to introduce a film that she made in the um, 90s called No Fear, No Die, which I've wanted to watch for a while. Right. So I'm going to see her. She's going to give an introduction before that on Tuesday. Um, so I watched, uh, or rewatched Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey um, just because I saw it on a streaming service. Hey, wait one second. I'm going to call my mom real quick. All right. Hey. Hunter. How's it going? Oh, it's going wonderful, my son. I got some new braces. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the funny thing was, the dentist didn't charge me any money. What? <laughs> yeah, not a single cent. Wow. And I bought you a hat with the money I saved. Oh, that's awesome. Because you're my favorite son. That's so good to hear. I've also been listening to your podcast. Wow. Yeah, I, I think it's, mm. it's nice. You think you're going to do your own little... Yeah, I'm going to do my own little podcast. Um, I want it to be like an interview show, but but with the one guest. And it's always the same guest. And and the guest I, I, I want is called uh, Larry Fines, you know, the, the actor. And uh, I'm just going to interview him every week. And uh, it's going to be called Mom Interviews Larry Fines. Okay. Also, the the doctor called, and you have chlamydia again. Okay, I'll I'll be sure to pass it along to uh, Alicia. <laughs> also, I have it too. Well, I hope you have fun, regardless. Yeah, well, I'll I'll give it my best shot, but you know. Could be a little tough. Yeah. Right. Anyway, bye. Okay. Bye. All right. Hello. Hello. Anyway. Where was we? I don't know. What, bogus journey. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So, uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey appeared on a streaming service I signed up for. So I felt like watching it, and I watched it, um, mm. especially in lieu of the recent announcement of the uh, third installment. And uh, it was. <laughs> it's not that good, really. It's okay. It's fine. You know, it's funny. It's that thing where you try and not necessarily be too punitive on. Mm-hmm pre-PC culture films, I guess. Don't they... I, I listened to a podcast about that that movie. Um, not that long ago. Don't they use a specific gay slur? Yeah, that's what That's often. what I bristle... You could, you could argue that that's technically in keeping with the characters, but, um, but I think the best... The best thing about Bill and Ted is, that, is their amiability, and that kind of yeah. immediately, like, is like a shard in, into your heart against that. So. Right. Um, I, I found that a little uncomfortable and I think I prefer, cause I, I remember it was only a few years ago that I rewatched, mm-hmm. 
the first one. I think I prefer the first one because it feels more like it feels bolted together from almost nothing. Mm. And I kind of like that. This has a little bit of a bigger budget and is a little bit of a slicker proposition. Um, yeah, I think I prefer the, the first one. Uh, Most people do, it seems. Oh, there's a lot of revisionist acclaim for the second one and a lot of people who say it's better. Well, but people are pretty stupid, so... Mm. Uh, then I watched The Nice Guys, mm. the uh, 2016 Shane Black film, mm. to continue my murky moral journey. <laughs> What's murky about uh, Shane Black? Well, doesn't, isn't that guy who, who's like a... Isn't the pedo guy in the film? I guess he might be. Somewhere? You told me he was in it. I didn't, I didn't recognize him. Or I don't know what he looks like. But he's, he's not in... Um, he got cut out of the Predator, so... He got cut out of the Predator. But, uh, I'm not a particular Shane Black fan. I've seen the original Lethal Weapon, and I think it pales in comparison to Die Hard, if you're talking about the peaks of 80s action cinema. Sure. It's not bad, though, but it, I didn't particularly like it that much. Sure. Um, I was never... I didn't like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang back in the day. I didn't... I actually quite enjoyed Iron Man 3. I thought that was the better of the Iron Man films, or the best of the Iron Man films. So I, I agree with you there. I agree with we you can't, there. We can't talk about those movies until we do our special. That's right, that's right. Ah! You motherfucker. I'd heard a lot of good things about The Nice Guys, uh, not least from yours truly. Which means me, and but I meant you. Marilyn plays a, the the sexual predator guy. Plays a character called Perry the Warrior. So okay, I don't really remember. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah, you you espoused the merits of this particular film. You said you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I decided to watch it. It sort of suited the type of mood I was in. Sure. And I found myself by the end reluctant, reluctantly conceding that it's a. Pretty damn enjoyable film. Fuck you. <laughs> you just take so much pleasure in watching things that I enjoy and not liking them. Or trying to, anyway. Well, it's more, like, it wasn't so much, like, to be contrarian to your opinions as much as my um, reluctance about Shane Black yeah. himself. Or reticence yeah. to espouse his merits. Right. I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, I had, I was... Uh, I was a Shane Black cynic going in. And now you're a true believer. And maybe I still am to some degree, because I've seen The Predator. <laughs> but that was um, apparently taken away from him. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, but anyway, the, the Nice Guys is surprisingly really enjoyable. Yeah, it is. It's... And I was actually surprised that it was actually directed quite well. Yeah, and uh, like I, think, the... I think Russell Crowe and uh, Ryan Gosling are both very... They're, br- they're very really enjoyable in it, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's actually quite a lot of good visual gags, which is not something I necessarily associate with Shane Black. Yeah. Like the bit where the guy dies from flight off the balcony. Hmm. <laughs> That's really funny. And that the scene in which they're uh, going to like a hotel room yeah. to attempt to save the person they're trying to find. Yeah. And it's clear that there's like some slick killer murdering people everywhere and they kind of retreat and end up <laughs> leaving the scene. <laughs> And sort of have a conversation about whether they should confront them or not. Um, if if I were to be transported back to a time in which I watched free-to-air television uh-huh. and this came on again, I would probably watch it again. <laughs> it's the perfect... It's, it seems like it's a very rewatchable proposition. Yeah, because you can just sort of go into the deep point and be like, oh, yes, this is enjoyable. Yeah. 
and you could yeah you could you could appear at any point as well and yeah. happily coast through to the end yeah for sure um, but yeah that's i would actually recommend anyone who was interested to watch that uh i also watched last night talladega nights the ballad of ricky bobby which i'd always seen bits and pieces of on television over the years but never seen it properly um i watched an uncut unrated version or something that's probably the bad way to do it yeah maybe i made the wrong choice but like i looked at the duration i was like it's only like five minutes longer so maybe it's not that different but uh even though i am surprisingly fond of stepbrothers i i did not particularly like that's the one that i don't particularly like that much I much prefer Step Brothers, although I, I mean maybe I haven't given it a proper like rewatching um, since I first watched it. But I remember like it's I n- I'm never fond of Will Ferrell in most of his films, and I remember just coming across Step Brothers and going oh god, but being won over by it. Uh-huh. I just think the premise is very ludicrously enjoyable, but like it actually feels like there's a lot more substance in the script and premise of Step Brothers uh-huh. than there is actually in Talladega Nights. And what I mean by that is, like, just the idea of Step Brothers is inherently funny to some degree, and you just have to then pull it off. Um, and even the plotting of Step Brothers is kind of funny, just on paper. Whereas I don't think the, the bones of Talladega Nights are inherently amusing. I wish I wish that uh, they had gone with the original ending of Step Brothers. Which was what? Apparently it's going to end with them both, like, it would just be like a smash cut to them fighting in Iraq, which I would have, I would have <laughs> loved. <laughs> but uh, I don't think they ever filmed it, but I, I, I just love the idea of that. Which is kind of a ripoff of uh, uh, a De Palma film, actually. Um, but but I, I just think the, the bones of Talladega Nights aren't particularly interesting or amusing in and of themselves. Mm. I grew up watching that film, so I can't. I don't really have like an objective opinion about that, to be honest. So basically it leans on the notion that Will Ferrell improvising is the funniest thing in the universe. Yeah, and which I you don't care for. I really it. don't think it is. I don't like films that rely so heavily on improv. Yeah, I'm um, aware. I don't mind like improvised components to something but i think you really have to work around it to make it work like you can't really skimp on the rest of the film and hope that the 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 actors improvising will carry the day so basically that that's what the whole film felt like and the problem i have with improv in comedy films like this is that like you're not on stage so you there's no additional delight of knowing that that came off the top of the performer's head. You've got no idea. You're just watching people being yeah. filmed who have gone through this whole process. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter in the end whether it was improvised or written. It just matters whether the joke works or not. Yeah, sure. You know, if you're watching, like, a live performance and a, a performer comes up with something off the top of their head, mm. uh, you're more forgiving of that because you're kind of appreciating the fact that they've just come up with a quip, like on a panel show or whatever. Right? Uh-huh. And it seems to me like the people making the film were overawed by Will Ferrell and the other performers coming up with funny things off the top of their head, which would be funny probably on the set if you're making the film. And I think that means that they uh, maybe overjudged the merits of of what was actually being said. So it's just full of lines that if you just look at on paper, they're not particularly funny. 
uh-huh. and I, I don't find the performances particularly amusing. That, but maybe I'd be slightly impre- impressed if I knew that whole scene was improvised off the top of their head. But that doesn't make a better film. Uh-huh. In fact, it makes a worse film. And I, I just yeah, I don't like this style of heavy, heavily improvised character comedy particularly. So. Yeah. Even though I do like Step Brothers. Yep. Okay. Yeah.